Amen. Well, we're going to come now to uh, our reading this morning. Uh, it's from uh, the letter of 2 Timothy. Uh, we've printed it on the sheet, um, but if you've got a Bible, it's 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And this morning, I'm going to be reading from verse 8. Uh, on the sheets, verse 1 of the letter has sort of sneaked in, uh, or half of verse 1 of the letter has sneaked in. Um, so please ignore that. I'm going to read from verse 8, which is the second line of uh, uh, the reading on the sheets. So 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. Let's hear the voice of the Spirit as he speaks to us this morning. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. Uh, Paul, the apostle, is writing to Timothy, uh, a minister uh, who is struggling uh, to uh, carry out the duties given him. Verse 8. Therefore... Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Uh, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Uh, You're aware uh, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Let me pray once more. As we turn to God's word. Father God, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be hearts might be pleasing in your sight. Feed us with the healthy words of Scripture, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, once again, writes to Timothy. Paul, the great apostle, uh, writes to Timothy, the ordinary church minister, uh, in order to equip Timothy for work when Paul is gone. Uh, Last week, I said that when we read this letter, when we hear this letter, we we should hear two sounds ringing in our ears, really all the way through. Uh, The first is the sound of sharpening swords. Paul is in prison. Uh, We read that even in... Uh, verse uh, 16 of this passage, uh, Paul, is in, uh, sorry, Paul is in chains. And that's why this guy Onesiphorus had to search for him. Uh, this isn't a nice house imprisonment. At the end of Acts, Paul uh, is under house arrest. And it's still grim, no one wants to be under arrest, but he has a degree of freedom. Here Paul is in a grim dungeon. Uh, the accounts of prison uh, in Rome uh, that, that, you, that you can read just make it sound horrendous. Every kind of caricature 
out of the dungeon, dank, cold, unforgiving. Seems to have been true of these Roman prisons. And Paul knows he's not going to escape. This time the sword is sharpening. He will be executed. Uh, that is the first sound we're meant to hear. And again, I said last week, the second sound is that of ministers weeping. Timothy, Paul says, I remember your tears. A true ministry has always taken uh, place in that context. True ministry uh, always takes place under the sound of the sword sharpening. The world will always persecute the church. And therefore, uh, ministers, and indeed all Christians, because ultimately ministry uh, is shared beyond just those ordained, those sort of elders who lead the church. Uh, but all true ministry is done in weeping. Uh, and now, uh, Paul wants to, 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 to put Timothy's focus well, somewhere else. Uh, yes, the sword is sharpening. Yes, you are weeping. But I want, what I really want for you, Timothy, this morning, Paul, what I really want you to do is to be able to tell the time rightly. Tell the time rightly. What, what time is it? If you can just keep your eye on the clock, on the calendar, and read it rightly, well, then your ministry will go well. It might not be successful, it might not be huge, but it will be faithful. The key thing is, Timothy, the key thing is, therefore, this morning, Christchurch Central, do you know what time it is? Paul, do you notice? Twice in this reading. Twice in this reading, Paul refers to a date. There's a date that is meant to dominate Timothy's diary, that is dominated Paul's diary all the days of his ministry, and is meant to dominate yours and my diary, whoever we may be. Do you see the date? Do you notice it? It comes twice. Once in verse 12, and once in verse 18. It's not a date like the 13th of April. No one knows precisely when this date will fall, but this date is the great day. Verse 12. I know whom I've believed. I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day. This ESV helps us by putting a big capital D. That day. There is a day coming, says Paul. God will guard the gospel till that day. We'll come back to that. All down in verse 18. May the Lord grant to Onesiphorus, this faithful Christian, mercy on that day. Again, big capital D to make it stand out for us. What, what day is Paul talking about? He's talking about what, what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. Uh, the day when all history will be wrapped up. Uh, the day when the Lord Jesus will return and each and every human being who has ever lived from Adam through to the last child born will stand before the judgment throne and have to give account it's called sometimes Judgment Day. It is the day when humanity will finally be divided into two. Uh, those who are taken to heaven and glory and peace and eternal rest. And those who are cast away forever uh, into hell. Uh, it is a terrifying day. As well as a day of great joy. And it is the day that dominates Paul's thinking and should dominate Timothy's thinking if he's going to have a faithful ministry. It's a day that there ought to be scratched across the top of each of our diaries. You don't know when it's going to happen. No one knows when the, the, the Lord will return. But, but the temptation is always for Christians to go to sleep and live in light of, well, frankly, every other day. 
If this day was not coming, if the Lord Jesus was not going to return, if history was just going to meander on, then frankly, you might as well live as if, well, with the intention of getting as much pleasure selfishly out of life as you can right now. You might as well live for today and not think about tomorrow. As Paul says elsewhere in his letter to the Corinthians. If there is no resurrection, if there is no future, if when we die we rot, then we Christians should be pitied above all things. You might as well throw it in now. Just just eat, drink and be merry. Get as much as you can out before you die. But no, says Paul, there is a day coming. And your lives, and for you, Timothy, your ministry needs to be lived in light of that day. And so the key question is for Timothy, are you living for now or for then? For now or for then? In that sense, as Christians, we're meant to be like this kind of Olympic athletes. The Olympics comes around once every every four years, I think. And you read of these men and women and just the extraordinary lengths they've gone to for the sake of that one race, that 100 metres, that one kind of rowing race. Rowing race is the only thing English people win, isn't it? You know, it's Steve Redgrave and, and Pinsent, you know, they're three, four, how many gold medals it was. Up every day, 5am, down to the river to row, rain or shine. Uh, why? Not because on that day it was the most pleasant option. It most certainly wouldn't have been. But because they had their eyes focused on a particular goal, a future goal, a day. For them, that day of testing, that Olympic final. Christians, many times in your life, you'll be faced with a choice. A choice to live for now or for then. And frankly, the more comfortable choice will be to live for now. To forget that day and make the choice that makes today easier. Uh, This chapter, or this part of the chapter, helps understand uh, that dynamic a little bit more. Uh, Look at verse 8. One big command, really, in this this section. Uh, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel. Keep keep your eye on that last day in order not to be ashamed of the gospel, the testimony about the Lord, that's the message of the gospel, or of me, his prisoner, says Paul. Um, If you're a Christian here this morning, I I am certain there are times when you have been ashamed of the gospel. It happens, doesn't it? Uh, There are times when, when someone says, you know, what is it that you believe? And you just tone it down a little bit. Tomorrow morning in the office, what were you doing yesterday? And you talk about well, the lunch you had or the walk in the park. And just try tuck the church bit quietly away. There's something so, just, just so incomprehensible about it, isn't it? We, we know that the gospel is the message of eternal life. We know it is good news. We know it is God's power for salvation. And yet still we become ashamed. I remember I was sort of student age uh, and my, my grandpa was, was dying and I went out to see him and he, he, was, he, was, he was in a room, he was in a hospice by now and there was no one else in the room, the nurses left, there was no one else in my family was there and he was dying, he'd be dead within a, within a day and I knew that. He could hardly speak anymore and I was sat by his bed and yet still so hard to, to, to boldly speak the gospel to him. Why? 
Because our hearts are so sinful, we so easily become afraid. We're so concerned about what other people think. In that situation, madness, here was a man who I loved. Here was a man who, who actually couldn't cause any trouble for me anyway. Who couldn't even sort of tell other people in the family. You know, James started preaching his religion at me on my dying. But no one else to overhear it, no doctors. No, and still, a battle with shame. Lord God eventually enabled me to stumble something out. But you'll know that feeling of shame. How easy it is. And how wicked it is to be ashamed of the gospel. Uh, Because, do you see the command, verse 8? Shame and suffering go together. Uh, One command, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel. Um, It's like two sides of a coin. Children, I couldn't give you a coin. You know both sides of the coin? They've got heads and tails, haven't you? If I said, oh, I'll just give you the heads side of the coin... Don't be silly. You can't give me the head side of the coin without the tail as well. They go together. Well, so too, not being ashamed of the gospel means we will suffer. You see, verse 8. If you're going to be unashamed of the gospel, to put it positively, then you will suffer. Or to turn it around, the reason we're ashamed of the gospel, we keep quiet, is because we don't want to suffer. But Paul says all ministry... Uh, all ministry is like this. Okay, there's a, as, as you read different parts of scripture, as you preach different parts of scripture, there's a, there's a tone that comes through as well as the content of the words. And I think to Timothy, it's, it's an encouraging letter in lots of ways, but it, it is a sober letter, quite a somber letter. It feels weighty. These are Paul's last words to the church. Some of the last instructions we hear from a, an appointed apostle. Uh, they are urgent, uh, and we know that. Uh, we know that f- at times people will, well, will let us down. I look at verse fifteen through eighteen. That last little section, Paul gives Timothy examples, presumably of people he knows, of uh, people who have become ashamed. Uh, verse fifteen, you know. Uh, you're aware that all who are in Asia, now Asia there isn't what we call Asia, the, the continent. Asia is sort of Asia Minor. It's essentially kind of Turkey, as we would call it now. It's a Roman province. But they've all turned away from me. Now, Paul planted churches all around Asia Minor, Asia. Now, Paul says they've, they've all turned away from me. Now, there's a little bit of exaggeration going on there, as you'll say in a minute. And Esiphorus has, has stayed faithful. But, but even when the apostle Paul has ministered, he couldn't get a better pastor, could you? A better theologian, a better preacher. Even when he has ministered, people have turned away from him. People are prepared to abandon even Paul. He gives two examples. We don't know anything more about Phygelus and Hermogenes. Presumably Timothy knew them. Presumably they were workers with Paul, well known enough to, to warrant mention in a letter. Even they have abandoned me. People do this, says Paul. Timothy, don't be a Hermogenes, a Phygelus. On the other hand, be like an Esiphorus in verse 16. There's a positive example as well. He searched me out. He wasn't embarrassed. He wasn't ashamed. See the word again, verse 16? He wasn't ashamed of my chains. But he looked all through Rome to find me in the dungeon. And has ministered to me. So, so here, the, the command is, is clear. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. But that probably feels weighty, doesn't it? How, how are we going to do that? I know I don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. I'd like not to be ashamed of the gospel, but equally, I know the pressure's on me. 
think yourself through to tomorrow morning at school, at work, wherever you might be. How can you, how can you be unashamed, be confident, be bold, humble, gentle, but bold? Well, Paul, thankfully, gives us uh, the answer this morning. Do you see verse 8? How is it possible? How is it possible to share in the suffering of this gospel ministry, to be bold with the gospel? Well, you do it, end of verse 8, by the power of God. By the power of God. The power doesn't come from you, but from God. And Paul explains what this power is, or where we see this power. We see it ultimately in salvation. The power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. You want to see where God is powerful? Look how he saved you, says Paul. Christianity is all about being saved. Not about rescuing yourself, not about earning your place in heaven, but being saved, rescued. In that sense, we're like drowning men and women who who God scoops out of the ocean and rescues. Nothing we do, but everything he does. And Paul, in this massive long sentence, kind of classic Paul sentence, you start reading it, it just goes on and on and on and on as he puts comma and comma and comma and on and on and goes, really summarises the gospel in two ways, or I want to summarise it in two ways this morning. He focuses on the grace of the gospel and the destruction of death. The grace of the gospel and the destruction of death. Uh, the grace of the gospel is verse 9. He saved us and called us to a holy calling. Why? Well, because we're the ones he saw potential in. Uh, we're the ones who'd make the best servants. We're the ones who'd make the most holy Christians. We're the ones who'd be uh, the best disciples, the best evangelists. No, none of that. Do you see verse 9? He saved us not because of our works. Here's as clear as you could get on the, what's called the grace of the gospel. You were saved not because of your works. Nothing you did or thought or felt saved you, but only because of his purpose and grace. He did it. He did it all. Again, if you're not a Christian at the moment, you're still trying to work things out. Please hear this. The, the, the good news of the gospel, gospel just means good news. The good news of the gospel is that God doesn't require you to pay anything to him. You do need saving, you need forgiving, you're facing death, we'll see that in a minute. But he comes to you and just says, take the gift. Take the gift of eternal life. My son has died in order that you might be forgiven. Take it as a free gift. And to drive home um, how completely your rescue is not of works. Paul, Paul gets tempted to look at the clock again. When did your salvation happen? Well, let me ask you that this morning. If someone said, well, you know, when were you saved? If you're a Christian this morning, when were you saved? Have you ever seen those movies where you know, they want to go back in time? It's kind of, I think it's probably a bit of a cheesy thing, more of a sort of 1980s movie type thing. But the, the clock starts spinning backwards to show that we're going back in time. Okay, back and back and back. So imagine the clock spinning backwards. When were you saved? We say, well, I need to spin the, the clock backwards 10 years. Okay. I was at camp, summer camp, and I heard a, a gospel talk. That's when I was saved. And Paul says, well, yes, but, but no. Keep the clock spinning. So you think, well, okay, I'll spin it back further. Maybe I was saved. I was saved when Jesus died for me. And Paul says, yeah, yeah, 
You can spin the clock back 2,000 years. That's right. Come to that in a minute, but, but not really. Keep the clock spinning. He said, well, okay, I'll go back and back and back. How can I go back further? Beyond, before Jesus' death, I was saved when God made the world. Paul says, Nate, not gone back far enough. That the clock explodes. Do you see verse 9? When did God give you grace? He gave you grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the first words, let there be light, God had already given you grace in Christ Jesus. He'd already planned your salvation. See how much that shows that it was not by works. It happened not just before you were born, but before the universe was born. And people sometimes don't like to talk about predestination. The idea of God planning your salvation so that it's certain, even before you're born. But it's a total comfort. And actually, it's totally inseparable. You can't put it apart from being saved by grace alone. See, if it wasn't God who planned that you would be saved, if it wasn't God who did everything, then it wouldn't be salvation by grace, would it? It'd be, be, be salvation by mostly God and you chipping in a little bit. That's not the gospel. That's not good news. We're saved entirely by God's work, planned before the world began. And that plan was put into action uh, when Jesus came. The second half of the gospel is the destruction of death in verse 10. Uh, this, this plan has now been manifested, shown through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus. You want to know where to be saved? Where is your salvation seen? You can't see before time began, can you? Well, look to Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Completely destroyed imagine death is a, is a great giant made of stone and he strides across the land smashing people left right and center crushing us jesus destroys him says paul death is destroyed in jesus work death in the bible has um three meanings really it, it, it means of course stopping breathing you know, the kind of physical death we talk about body and soul separate it but it also means spiritual death. Uh, this separation between us and God. We cannot know God because we've turned aside from him. We've become spiritually dead. So we're alive physically. Our heart is beating. Our, our brain is firing. But we are dead spiritually, naturally. And ultimately that leads to eternal death. That is the, the judgment that God justly enacts upon those who reject him forever. That is hell. That lasts eternally. Well, Jesus destroyed all those senses of death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. In his death, he took the sting for us. It's like a scorpion coming to strike you children. Scorpion with its tail. Deadly poison. And Jesus sticks out his arms and takes the blow in in your place. He underwent physical death on the cross. He really died as he hung there. But so too he underwent this spiritual and eternal death, albeit just in the hours he hung there. He he bore the wrath of God. He went through hell on the cross in order that you and I might not. And therefore he's brought life in immortality. When when, when sin is paid for, death has no hold on you anymore. The the giant is destroyed. That's one of the reasons Paul 
thinks that you, you can be bold and, and, and even face prison and execution for him because death is destroyed. Remember, this whole section is on how can I put Paul's concern with how can, how can I be unashamed of the gospel? How can I embrace suffering when I really don't want to? What well, he says, remember the grace of the gospel and the destruction of death. The grace of the gospel. Uh, God did everything, 100% of saving you. And so God will do 100% of keeping you going. It is God who will enable you to be unashamed of the gospel. A God who will empower you to embrace the suffering that comes within it, with it. Uh, you were saved not by works, but by grace. And you will persevere, even embrace this suffering, not by works, but by grace. So you might say, at this point, you might say, well, okay, so if God's going to do it all anyway, why do I even need to know about it? Okay, if God's going to preserve me by grace, maybe unashamed of the gospel, but by grace, but why do I even need to know about it? Well, because the way that, that grace works and the way that grace works in us uh, is by, by making us to doubt ourselves, stop trusting ourselves and cast ourselves consciously on God instead. I was trying to think of a way of illustrating this and I couldn't come up with anything good, so apologies for you know, a bit of a rubbish illustration, but it might give you a glimmer at least. Um, d- dinner time. Okay, when it comes to dinner time, we say, children, come and sit down, please. Okay, we've got four children. Come and sit down, please. Now, our three eldest children are fine. They can come sit down. Our, our littlest is only two. He's in a high chair. Now, he comes to the, he comes to the dinner table, and his, the high chair is up here. He just can't get in, but he's two, so he's determined. Okay, he wants to do things by himself. Okay, so we sort of grab it and pour it in, but there's just no way he can do it. He just can't get in. Only when he gives up and says, "Daddy, help," can he get in the chair, because then I can lift him up and put him in the chair. Okay, I'm doing everything, what, but what does he have to do? He has to surrender first. Okay, I will pick him up and put him in the chair. He needs to acknowledge that he's going to be lifted in by the power of someone else. I told you, a silly example. But, but so too with our, our Christian lives, with this being willing to embrace the suffering, whatever it may be, being prepared to be ashamed for the gospel. Part of the dynamic that goes on in our hearts and needs to go on in our hearts is, is, is coming to God and saying, look, I cannot do this. I see that I cannot do it. I've been ashamed of you a thousand times. I don't want to be ashamed of you anymore. But I have no power in me to do it, so help me. God has put the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The verse before the one we read uh, tells us that God gave us a spirit, not of fear, power. Not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Part of the Christian life is increasingly realise you have nothing in you. Not just nothing to get yourself saved, but nothing to keep you going. Nothing to grow you in holiness. Nothing to enable you to embrace suffering. And therefore, as you go on, you realise you're weaker and weaker and you have to cast yourself more and more on God's mercy. It is the grace of God shown in the gospel that is available to you now for godly living. Not by works. Empty yourself. You can't do it. And remember that Christ has destroyed death. What is the worst that could happen to you? You're going to work tomorrow and someone says, did I hear a Christian? And you say, yeah. And they say, what does a Christian believe? What is the worst that can happen when you explain it? Frankly, in our situation, not a lot. 
mock you, tease you, exclude you, not invite you to after-work drinks, maybe not give you the promotion you wanted, isolate you. I mean, those things are painful, don't get me wrong. It's unlikely you're going to be taken outside of the lead city centre and executed, isn't it? But even if they did that, even if they did that, the point is Christ has destroyed death. And we're living in light of that day. And so when that day comes, if I put, put my trust in Christ, then I will not die. Okay, the sword may fall, but I'll live. What does Jesus say? I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. Those who believe in me will never die. I mean, never die. Paul was about to have his head chopped off. Yes, said Jesus, but he didn't die. He just had his head chopped off. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran minister who resisted Hitler and was, was hanged at the end of the Second World War by the Nazis. He says he didn't die, he just hanged. Because death for Christians is a gateway to eternal life, to paradise. And that's why, says Paul to Timothy, uh, that's why you must guard this message. You see that? In verses 13 and 14, he says it in two ways, really. First of all, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. And then, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells with you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. It is so important this gospel message is kept safe, Timothy. Follow it. They are, they are healthy words. The sound words, it, it's sort of life-giving words. It's the word used in the, in the, in the gospels when Jesus makes someone healthy again. It's that word, that the words of the gospel, okay, the message of the gospel, are saving. So follow it and, and keep it. Notice, by the way, that the gospel will always be under attack, as will uh, the rest of Paul's teaching. The embarrassment, or the, sorry, the, the, the danger at the beginning of the passage is to be ashamed not just of the gospel, but also of Paul. I spoke about this last week, so I don't want to do too much more on it today. But there are always those who would try and separate the two. Oh, well, I'm a Jesus-believing Christian, not a Paul-believing Christian. You can't do that. To be ashamed of the gospel and to be ashamed of Paul are the same thing. To be ashamed of Paul is to be ashamed of the gospel. Because Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He speaks Christ's words, not his own. It's not his opinion. And so Timothy is to guard what he's been taught. That, by the way, is, is one of the reasons why... We take a lot of care about who becomes elders in the church. Uh, Timothy is an ordinary Christian, but he's also a minister. Okay, and, 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 and elders, we're told, in, in fact, the first letter to Timothy and the letter to Titus, they have a particular job of teaching and defending the truth and here guarding it. Uh, that means they've got a particular responsibility for, for understanding God's word rightly. Uh, you might wonder why at times we, we have these sort of big, long um, statements of faith, for example. Uh, sometimes at Christchurch, we, we, we stand, we're not going to do it today, we were going to have a baptism, it would have happened then, we had to cancel it because someone got ill. Uh, we, we stand and we say things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, you think, well, why are we saying these things? Why don't you read a Bible passage? Well, because people, Paul doesn't say here, Timothy, copy the scriptures down word for word to make sure the Bible is passed on down the generations. Now, he definitely wants that to happen. He's going to come back to that in chapter three. But here, it's the right understanding that needs protecting. Almost every heretic, every false teacher in history taught the Bible. Teach it wrongly. Very few people come up and say, oh, stuff the Bible, I've got a new idea. Because when they do, the Christians say, well, go away, we don't want to listen to you. We know the Bible is what we're meant to listen to. So Paul wants Timothy to guard the right understanding of the Bible as Paul has taught it. Other teachers will come and teach the Bible, but will distort it. And all this is to be done how? 
We'll again thank God, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. We'll speak for a moment uh, to those of you who might desire to be elders in the church, whether full-time ministry or uh, elders in a local church. Uh, To those of you who are interested in theology, that is a good thing. It's good to read books. It is good to think. Some of you are are perhaps sceptical about that. Don't intellectualise the Christian faith. No, no, no. it's important to think deeply in order to better defend the truth. But don't ever think the way that you will hold on to the gospel and guard it it is through your intellect or the number of books you've piled up. It is spiritual work, ultimately. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, guard the gospel. It's only the Spirit who gives light, who gives understanding. We're not clever enough to work things out for ourselves. It is not the stacks of books or the size of your library, but only the Holy Spirit, ultimately, who can enable you to guard the truth. So yes, read. Yes, study. They are good things. Paul will encourage them throughout the letter. But trust ultimately in the Holy Spirit, which takes us back to where we began. What gives us strength? Uh, What should you pray for yourself and for those who minister to you? that we should not be ashamed of the gospel, but trust God alone to guard us, keep us, and make us bold. Uh, As we live in light of that last day that is coming, who knows when, but will arrive. That is the date that must dominate your diary. That is the date that must dominate your parenting, your marriage, your career. That is the date that should shape every decision you make. Uh, Morning through night. The day will come. Christ has made it a day of joy for you, not terror. So hold on to that gospel. Do not be ashamed of it. And bring as many people as you can with you when that day arrives. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we confess our sin to you again this morning. We are weak. We have been ashamed of your gospel too many times. A pardon us, we pray. Don't let our sin affect those who we've let down with our timidity and fear. We pray so much for those we love, uh, those we try to speak the gospel to. I pray that in your mercy you would bring them to life. Give us more opportunities to speak of Christ, we pray, and the boldness to take them. Uh, We pray that as a church we would guard the gospel, we wouldn't drift from it. Pour your Holy Spirit on us. We trust not in ourselves, but in him alone. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you've destroyed death. Let us live in that confidence, not fearing death as the world around us, but seeing that you are victorious. You've opened the gates of life and that death is crushed under your feet. And so enable us to empty ourselves of all self-reliance and to trust in you alone. And we come to you and ask for mercy. This we do in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Grant it, we pray, therefore, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.